You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Healthcare stocks have taken a hit over the past few weeks as Medicare for All fears spread among investors, with the S&P 500 health index spiraling down to its worst week since December. So we spoke about the stock moves with Michael Newshaw, an analyst at Evercore ISI, who said presidential primary politics are more in focus than fundamentals. We started by asking him just how concerned investors should be and if the type of selling we've seen in the healthcare space has been overblown. You really saw is, is is a confluence of factors, and it really was panic selling. It wasn't increasing the probability that this is actually going to happen. As you said, you know, we're years away from a having a real debate where something like this could be passed. And investors don't really think the probability has changed. I mean, anybody I talk to, at most, you might say one or two percent, certainly less than five percent across the board. Really? So then, why so why have you seen such a yeah. significant sell-off? Well, one one factor in terms of the macro backdrop is you did see a very strong shift from uh, defensive into cyclicals. Mm-hmm. So that was a confluence uh, with, the, with, the, with the macro, with the political headlines that we see. So you, you have that, you have that confounded with people looking for, looking for answers. Right. It increases the fear because it's really it's a fear of the fear. So we knew this Medicare for all debate was coming yeah. for at least a year or more in this space. And the, the question was like, when is it, it going to matter and, and should it matter? And really have it is a fear, fear of the fear, particularly in my space and the health insurer stocks. This is a group that's outperformed for multiple years. Um, it's, it's, been a, it's been the source of the alpha for a lot of, lot of books, for a lot of PMs. And they're increasingly asking the question, should I care more about Medicare for all or not? But really what they're worried about is, is the other guy worried or not? And it's really a fear of the fear that has is, that is, that is driven this. It really isn't a, the market priced in a probability that's really changed and well, what's going to happen. Well, that's interesting. I mean, we focus a lot on the Medicare for all actual proposal, but there is a broader debate about health care right. costs yeah. that seems to be picking up steam. You clearly have, not just on the left liberal side, but even in some of the right wing circles, a clear acknowledgement that something needs to be done and that something seems to involve the government in all these steps. Right. And you look yeah. in Washington, there's, always, yeah. there's a constant debate yeah. between the, the pricing and the coverage side mm-hmm. of, the, of the debate. You know, Medicare for All is really focused on the coverage side. And you know, Medicare for All is somewhat of an umbrella term for the Democratic side, where it really comes from, a, a, it comes from wanting universal coverage. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and there's steps to doing that. 
Um, also, controlling costs is something where there's actually more bipartisan support right now, particularly on drug pricing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see it more on the provider side as well with legislation on, ba- on balance billing. But the ground has really shifted on, on drug pricing. And that's where you see there's, there is more of a higher chance of actual change in the near term versus you know, complete government control. Were you f- surprised by CEOs starting to weigh in, like United Health? That seemed to catalyze the fear that actually you had executives looking point blank at. Medicare for all and deciding to take it on. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think you know that they can't ignore it at this point. You know, the stocks, the stocks, the stocks have moved. It's it's core, it's core to their business, and they have to make the right critique, right? Because it really is going to be highly disruptive to the system if you moved everybody into a Medicare plan and you paid on Medicare rates. It would be highly disruptive to the provider side because commercial insurance reimburses at higher rates and effectively cross subsidizes the rest of the health system. So you mentioned that uh, health insurance companies have really outperformed over the last several years. Obviously, they're under fire from the left, but they're also under fire from the right in the sense that, you know, there's still court challenges to Obamacare and the current model could be ripped up any time. We don't really know if uh, Trump were to be reelected with the Republican Senate. They might take another whack at it through the legislative route. Can the status quo hold? I mean, whatever side, whether it's Medicare for all unlikely, is it? Ten years from now, five, could you imagine that the current uh, health care system in the U.S. looks like it does? Or is there a good chance that somehow there's a, whatever it is, is very different? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's complete status quo. It's more of like how, how fast and how dramatic steps are we going to take? As I said, there is broad support in the Democratic Party for universal coverage, or at least to cover more people. So if you look at the legislation that the House Democrats have actually put in, started to put through committee, they're talking about stabilization of the Obamacare exchanges, increasing the subsidies. You know, maybe you can get a buy-in of Medicare that's optional. You know, there's, there's incremental steps where you could have the government paying for more, but it's not yeah. necessarily like wholesale disruption or, or forcing people to change plans if they don't want to. But if you're an investor trying to sort of figure out how to navigate mm-hmm. all this, I mean, do, are there any parallels you can draw between maybe mm-hmm. what's happening now and what happened with the implementation of the ACA and the disruption that that caused? Yeah, and really in 2008, 2009 is the last time we saw bottom valuations for, mm-hmm. for this industry. Although, although there I would say not only did you have uncertainty on the policy side, there was also the last time you had a downturn in the fundamentals of the health insurance where you had a, a negative underwriting cycle where, where there, there was a, a fundamental earnings decline. In addition to that, you have also the financial crisis. The financial crisis hit their balance sheets. So, you know, there, that is that is not the, quite the right corollary because now you just have the policy risk versus the fundamental risk as well. And really, what it comes down to trying to navigate the next the next potentially two years, you know, it really comes down to like timing and valuation. Now, valuation is a lot is a lot better, a lot more attractive, mm-hmm. compensates you for taking on some of that some of that risk now over the over the next potentially 12, 24 months. So you say, Mike, buy at this maybe bottom pick right now. I would buy managed care, yeah. It's, it's more of a you know, time horizon. If you're, willing, if you're willing to ride out the up, ups and downs, I'd be taking advantage of the, of the sell-offs and this volatility. Then we looked at another policy subject taking the Democratic presidential primary by storm, student debt relief. Democratic presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren proposed eliminating student loan debt for an estimated 42 million Americans, saying the debt load on so many Americans was weighing down the economy. The Massachusetts senator said she would fund her plan with an annual wealth tax on fortunes over $50 million. So we broke down the plan with Carl Smith, a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and Mark Holtzman, associate director of policy and research at Demos. And we started by asking about what the potential returns on investment for the plan could be. 
It is an ambitious proposal. Uh, it is, uh, I would say, a proposal that matches the scale and the scope of the problem. It's kind of easy to forget that we went from a world in which student debt was kind of an afterthought. It was taken on by people for graduate school, some middle class families to, to make ends meet, to a situation where student debt is basically required to go to college in this country. And that happened pretty rapidly over the course of a few decades. And the consequence of that has been that uh, student debt has worked out for some people, uh, but for others it's been a ticking time bomb and kind of prevented people from moving on with their lives and getting the actual value of the, out of their education that they thought they might get. And it's been particularly burdensome for communities of color. So Warren's proposal is something that uh, kind of is a reset on the system and says, look, we're going to return to the days when uh, not only was public college tuition free for many people, uh, but you don't actually have to borrow if you're a lower middle income student, which was the sort of goal of the system just a few decades ago. Carl, uh, come in here. What would be so bad if they just, you know, the government just with the stroke of a uh, keystroke reduced everyone's student debt to zero? Oh, well, I think the main thing is that um, that gives away a lot of money to people who are relatively high income. Mm. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, it's not clear exactly uh, where you're going to go with that, how that's going to affect people's sort of perception of credit markets and whether or not credit is secure. Um, uh, I think that it also contributes to the sense that, like, the government is going to continually bail out people in these situations. So I, I think that it's probably, um, I mean, it's an interesting proposal. I mean, I've at times thought that that might be the way we, we would have to go or something similar to that. But I'm not sure that, you know, I'm 100 percent on board in large part because the people who are going to benefit from this are people who are already fairly upper income. Um, I think that at least Warren's whole proposal sort of, like, encourages uh, the government to sort of throw more money at the college system. And I think that part of what you've seen is the availability of these loans has led to the price of college going higher and higher and higher um, as colleges sort of compete on amenities, as they sort of have uh, a research race that's not clearly benefiting the students. Um, they do all sorts of things that have inc radically increased costs over the years, in large part because we have these loans that we're throwing at them. Mm. And so if we move not only if we get rid of the student debt that we have, but if we move to like a more guaranteed funding system, uh, it seems like we're just kind of encouraging that sort of behavior to continue. And, and I'm not sure that that's the best, the best way to go. Mark, weigh in here, because there is steps being taken in this proposal to help reduce certainly the, the racial wealth gap when it comes to looking for student loans. And I'm interested by the element of those that don't actually finish their studies in some way get their, most of their student debt eradicated as well. Does this help the situation or does it harm, does it help re reduce some of the inequality or just keep it? Yeah, th this program was kind of specifically designed to address the racial wealth gap. So it's true that people who attend college or graduate school tend to have higher incomes, but the debt forgiveness plan, if you look at actually the, the language of, of Warren's uh, proposal today, uh, it, it would provide $50,000 of debt forgiveness for people making $100,000 or below a year. And it phases out for wealthier families. So it actually is kind of targeted at middle class families and those who have a lot of student debt but whose incomes aren't uh, sky high. Um, and on the point of whether or not uh, you know, this would just have government throw more money at the problem, I would say that one of the reasons we got to this point is that state governments disinvested pretty dramatically over the period of a few years and, or a few decades and, and certainly after the Great Recession. Uh, and community colleges in particular 
particular, where 40% of all students are, uh, they're not spending any more than they have been uh, on amenities or anything else than they have been for the last few decades. Uh, the problem really is a, a bottoming out of public support, which has led to, you know, up to about 60% of black students at community colleges have to borrow now. So uh, this is a, a reinvestment in public dollars, but I would say it's uh, an investment that has been lacking over the past few years. Well, Mark, what happened to the idea of generally just making college or at least uh, public colleges and community colleges either free or incredibly low costs? I mean, that was proposed, I think, at the tail end of the Obama administration, and it never even saw the light of day. Sure, I think that's, uh, you're seeing, uh, you know, some states have acted on that uh, after President Obama proposed free community college. Uh, Tennessee, under a Republican governor, was actually the first state to provide free community college in some form. Uh, Oregon, a few other states have, have started trying it. So states are kind of uh, experimenting with the idea of free college. California obviously has a uh, long tradition of having free college. And uh, what happened was states didn't you know, invest with the demand for education, right? So whereas college going used to be the province of a, a relatively wealthy few, you have the most diverse economically and racially generation in American history wanting to go to college and states didn't really keep up. So what Warren's plan does, um, other plans that have been out there from Senator Sanders to Secretary Clinton's in 2016 would bring states back to the table and say, look, we used to do this. Why can't we do it for the most diverse generation in American history? But I want to change so. gears and uh, go to Carl for a second and talk about the Fed. We had the uh, withdrawal of Herman Cain. Trump obviously back on the lookout, theoretically, for someone who's both conservative and who believes that there's no reason to raise rates. That sounds like you, Carl, and you have a media perch. So, A, are you in the running or would you accept a <laughs> FOMC position? And if not you, then who, uh, who out there do you think would be a good replacement? Um, so I don't know if I'm in the running. Uh, I would accept if I, uh, uh, if it was offered. Um, I haven't heard from anybody about that, so I, I don't know that uh, that I'm being considered. Um, <laughs> so who should so who should be considered? Uh, I, I wish that that um, Narayanya would be uh, would go for it. I heard that he doesn't want to take an appointment from from Trump, so that's that's bad. Um, Larry Lindsay, I think, is another good guy. Um, so I think I think a sort of out there pick, but one that would make a big uh, splash would be a Scott Sumner, who uh, is an economist and also a very famous blogger. Um, but I, I think he probably has has certainly given the feel that we have now the chops to be on the Fed. Um, so I, you know, I really like Neil Kashkari. I don't know if he he wants to move from his current position to the Board of Governors, but but those are the kind of people I would be thinking about. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We also caught up with the founder, chairman, and co-CEO of Canopy Growth, Bruce Linton, to talk about their acquisition of Acreage. We started by asking him about the unique structuring of the deal, which says Canopy won't have an active say in Acreage's operations until the U.S. legalizes pot at the federal level. And it includes a 90-month grace period for the legal change to happen. 
Well, I, I would say we invented it. <laughs> um, and the reason we did is you need to navigate around the circumstances you're in. And so in November, once we closed the Constellation investment, we said, here's where we are. We want to have the ability to buy with shares, but we can't because it's not federally legal. We need to make that some way a right or an option, so we've got to give the money to the existing shareholders. And I think it's actually better for them than pegging the price. What we did is we pegged the exchange ratio. And what uh, we can do behind that is we can actually lend in our know-how, experience, brands, so that now they can even become more dominant in America. We can keep inventing stuff and doing it in Canada and lending it down. And if and when it's not legal, it's when it's federally permissible. Uh, uh, and so uh, I am not so naive to believe that there's going to be a nationally mandated party with cannabis. But I do believe that at a federal level, they can't keep ignoring it. So they're going to say to the states, if you want to have patience, you can do it. Patients in a party, you can do it. Uh, that would be a triggering event if worded properly for us. But why do it now? Why sign this deal now instead of just waiting until that day comes or gets um, closer to it? I probably wouldn't buy anybody then. I would just come in with our own firepower and do what we're doing. So instead, we do this now, mm -hmm. which means we can lend our intellectual property trade uh, secrets, our, our, our I'll call it learned lessons, mm -hmm. lend it down and make a really powerful entity here. And so when we came up with the structure, we kind of looked at all of them, talked to a whole bunch of them. And what we liked with Acreage is they have a really noteworthy board and a really competent management team. Because once we do this deal, we can't supervise. Mm -hmm. We've got to know they have supervision. So it's listen, it's like a... Uh, a double flip, half twist, land it perfectly sort of thing. But the choice is to stand still and wait, and we're not really good at that. How about your biggest shareholder at the time, Constellation? What are they? How do they react to it? Well, uh, I think their stock's up about uh, <laughs> five or six or seven bucks. Um, this is the area in which they're the strongest. And what it allows us to do is get some momentum before things change. So we had to, of course, clear it with the big exchanges. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just came over here from Bank of America, started coverage on us last week, so we wanted to make sure we didn't offend any of those people, and Constellation. And so it's, it's how do you navigate through these things? It creates a structure. Talk about that meeting with the banks and like their comfort with dealing with cannabis companies. Yeah, it, it, it's um, what's today, like Tuesday? It was probably a different answer Monday. <laughs> um, and, and I say that in that um, last week, Bank of America initiated coverage and focused on us as a cannabis producer in 16 countries. And um, they, with Constellation and New York Stock Exchange and all these amenities, these trappings, uh, were able to move bigger and better. But there isn't a single day that I don't incur encounter bias. And I like that, right? People, I was just down at the New York Stock Exchange. I still can't ring the bell because I'm a marijuana guy. Um, is, that a, is that because they think in with regulations or is it just a rule or what? I think it's kind of like, uh, do you really want your bell with a marijuana guy getting on Instagram? Um, but uh, I think that bias, and it's everywhere, yeah. um, whether it's, what, will they legalize, can they have this stuff? We need that because it means we're at the front, we're pushing against it, right. and when it's all gone, then it's a new game. It's over for this one. Well, so, I mean, well, you're in their offices at Bank of America, so not everyone is offended by you no, or, or what no. you have to bring. But uh, I want to stay on the bank theme. I know what, what you're doing at Bank of America is a little bit different, but there is an issue with some of the smaller companies out here trying to get yeah. financing. They really can't go through the traditional banks here in the U.S., yeah. at least. They're having to go through more direct lenders. Uh, how is that sort of shaping up right now and, and with the challenges there? Well, so that's part of the reason that Acreage was keen to do something with us, because banking, a cost of capital goes up when you have restrictions. And there's a lot of them, right? So they're looking at a regulation called uh, SAFE, which would give access to banking. But the cost of capital in America right now is much higher than, say, us in Canada. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, it is a function of uh, disconnect between federally illegal and state permissible. And I don't think that's going to get ironed out very quickly until they do a state's right or something like that. And the intervening team, what Acreage will be able to do now is say, well, we kind of got like a gold-backed currency. Eventually, we become a canopy stock. We have this uh, a variety of people who might want to put capital to them because of that conversion. And while it won't be equal, um, my business is to make sure advantages go to the people we play with. And so I think they'll have a big one on banking. What's quite good for from your perspective with Acreage is also the calibre of their board and who's on it. It's interesting, John Boehner, previous speaker, they've got the ex-Prime Minister of Canada. There's political heavyweights there. Is that in any way going to change the timeline, the, the potential politicization, legalization of cannabis in the US? Well, I think if they influence it, they'll influence for the sector, which will be good for everybody, not unique to Acreage. But what I liked with those big names... Uh, what are they about? They're about their reputation and the risk against it. So when they said yes to that board, they must have done their diligence to see that it's a well-run company. Mm. And if we're not going to be able to supervise in any way, give budgetary direction or anything, I really do like the fact that there is a really strong management team that's attracted top-notch board members because this is not a fly-by-night operation. This is a real 20-state, well-structured company. What's been the biggest surprise to you since recreational became legal in Canada? Um, the number of people in certain provinces where they only had a website and you could buy from the government and people that would be in their 60s or 70s who are sending me saying, look at what I bought. on a." So basically what they're saying is I'm going to log into a government website, I'm going to give them my credit card, my home address and ask the government to ship marijuana to my house and then I'm going to tell somebody who could be friends with my kids what I bought and isn't that amazing. Uh, on a whole bunch of levels, I didn't see that coming. I can see why when you have stores, people want to walk into a store get educated, see somebody, learn about the products, and that I, we really saw the traction. But the amount of transactions that occurred on that kind of platform surprised me. Huh. Um, people, I think, have also been a little bit caught off guard. You know, the media might say it didn't go great. Well, if I came on your show last year at this time, you'd be saying, do you think the government will pass the rules? Because they had not yet. Oh. And when they did, it was July 1st, sort of, and they hadn't said when it's starting. So in a period of like six months, we went from, are they going to pass the rules to selling the first gram in Newfoundland on the most east coast? Now what we're planning is for Q4, they're going to have way more stores, but in Q4, we're expected to get to launch beverages, vape devices, edibles. So now you'll be able to go to a store with a comprehensive selection of consistent goods and actually get what you want. Then we spoke with former New York Federal Reserve President Bill Dudley about his new column for Bloomberg Opinion titled, Trump Can't Easily Break the Fed. He discussed why he thinks the U.S. Central Bank can survive a couple of politicized appointments like Stephen Moore. We started by asking him why he thought having White House loyalists in two out of 12 Fed Board governor seats wasn't too bad. I think there's a two, couple, couple considerations. Number one, uh, there's 12 voters on the FOMC if the Board of Governors is at full strength. And if the president were to fill the two open vacancies, that would be two out of 12, uh, which is not anywhere close to a majority. Uh, second, uh, the, the FOMC has been pretty united behind uh, Chairman Powell. There's been no dissents uh, in the nine meetings that he's chaired to date. So, uh, you know, there'd be a bigger risk if you're bringing more people in that disagreed if there was already disagreement. But there, you're starting from a point that there is basically no disagreement uh, within the Federal Open Market Committee. And the third important point is to recognize how the Federal Reserve actually operates. Uh, the, the Sunshine uh, Act in, 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 
basically says that if there's four, four or more governors get together, they have to declare, uh, have to have an open meeting, mm. which means that most uh, pre-meeting deliberations occur with only two or three governors present. So in, in, the, in the monetary policy setting process, it's really going to be driven by uh, Chairman Powell, uh, Vice Chair Clarida, and uh, the president of the New York Fed. They're the ones who are really going to set the agenda. Uh, whoever the, the, the president get, gets through Congress uh, is going to be sort of off to the side, and they're not going to be really central to the monetary policy setting process. Well, your comment struck me, and it was a very, very well-written column that we were reading through here on Bloomberg Opinion. And it was interesting that you said that there really is no disagreement with the Fed chair, Jay Powell, that everyone is sort of united around him. I wonder, is that a good thing? I mean, would it be better to have a little bit more of a discussion and a debate, or is it really important here that the Fed chair really have all the power? Well, I don't think the, the, the chair has all the power. I just think that there's agreement about what the right course for monetary policy is right now, given the fact that the U.S. economy looks like it's slowing a bit. There's not an inflation problem. So I think there was unanimity that it made sense to, to switch to a, 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 a patient uh, approach. Uh, I think that there's plenty of discussion and debate within the FOMC. Uh, when I was there, and I was there for you know, 11 and a half years, uh, there was a pretty wide range of views. And I certainly agree that you want to have diversity on the Board of Governors, diversity within the Federal Open Market Committee. Uh, but diversity means people that have independence in terms of how they reach their views, not someone that just takes a political line uh, because they want to uh, uh, be in, in accord with the president. It's interesting that in your piece, you then go on to what might constitute a risk going forward. Speak to us about how potentially the next presidential race and indeed the winner of the election could dictate perhaps more of a concern going forward. Well, right now, uh, Chair Powell has basically said he's planning to serve out his term, which uh, ends January 2022. So that means that the core leadership of the Fed is not going to change before then. But if President Trump were to be reelected, uh, he presumably would have the authority at that point in time to try to replace the chair uh, with someone uh, maybe more uh, of a political loyalist. And so at that point, things at the Fed really could change. So my view is that the risks in the near term are very low. But if the president gets reelected, then the risk to the Fed's independence go up significantly. So it's just one more uh, issue about the next election that makes it very, very important in terms of how uh, we go forward. I wonder if there's a risk that the Fed becomes too politicized. This is a conversation that we've had daily, you know, as, as the president has tweeted and talked about his really wanting lower rates. And I wonder, how does the Fed make sure that they stay independent? What is the risk that they perhaps may be too politicized or not? Well, I think, I think Chairman Powell has been taking the right approach. He's basically just kept, keeps reiterating the fact that the Fed doesn't take politics into consideration in reaching its monetary policy decisions. He doesn't talk about the president's criticism at all. So I think he's basically taking the high road and making it very clear that the Fed really wants to conduct monetary policy independent of political considerations, and that's how they actually do it. Can we assess the Fed and how it's behaving right now in terms of rates, in terms of inflation? You said earlier, uh, Bill, that there wasn't an inflation problem. However, we're not hitting the 2% target. The market now seems to be anticipating potentially even a preemptive strike, a rate cut to try and get us towards that level. Do you think that's in any way needed? I think we're pretty far away from talking about reductions in rates. I think the Federal Reserve's view is that the economy is still growing above trend. It's still adding jobs at a healthy rate. 
The labor market continues to tighten. Wages continue to gradually accelerate. So I think that the Fed sees the shortfall in inflation that we're seeing today as probably temporary rather than permanent. So I think the strategy for now is just to sit here and wait for more information. Uh, I think they're pretty far away from thinking about cutting rates. Well, if you think it's temporary, you know, and, and not permanent, I wonder, as we talk in the last decade or so, really 100 years or so, about that 2% target, are there structural things going on within the economy that maybe 2% shouldn't be the target anymore? Well, there's, the Fed, Federal Reserve has said that they're going to reevaluate re their inflation framework. Uh, and there has been discussion about raising the target from 2%. So if you had a higher inflation target, then you could have higher short-term rates at the peak of the economic cycle, which would give you more scope for cutting if you actually had a recession. But I think at the end of the day, the Fed is not going to raise the inflation target. Uh, Congress sets the standards for the Fed in terms of what its goals are, ma maximum sustainable employment and price stability. I think the Fed has been able to convince Congress that 2% inflation is broadly consistent with price stability, I think a higher inflation number would not. So I think the 2% standard is probably going to be kept. What may happen is they may decide to make it a little bit less, you know, a point estimate. Uh, some people have proposed having a range, you know, one and a half to two and a half or 1% to 3%. So it wouldn't surprise me if they, uh, you know, just create a little bit more flexibility because the reality is the Fed can never hit, almost never can hit 2% precisely. So having a 2% target is really something that is almost unachievable to actually hit. Good perspective there. I want to lastly get your perspective on the global picture that we're seeing at the moment. By the Fed's pause, or as we call it, it seems to have given breathing room to certainly more of the central banks are a little bit squeezed in terms of the ropes that they can pull to add firepower to their current countries and, and indeed economies. I'm thinking particularly of the data that we just had out of Europe, once again, pretty woeful today. How concerned are you about the rest of the global picture and how much the Fed, of course, is the central bank to the world? I think the, the big thing is that China is really starting to try much harder to stimulate their economy to generate stronger growth. And China is a really important economy in the, in the world now. Uh, they provide a huge impetus to global economic activity. And that's really one of the reasons why you've seen such a slowdown uh, in Europe, especially uh, in, in Germany. I think as China does better, uh, Europe will do better. And some of the fears about recession will gradually fade. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.